Good evening, everybody, and welcome to this evidence-based dietary and pharmacologic approach to managing patients with hyperkalemia and associated comorbidities. So the agenda is as follows. Module one is going to be a scientific review of recurrent hyperkalemia, dietary potassium intake, serum potassium, and uh, patient morbidities by Professor Biff Palmer from the University of Texas Southwestern. Biff is a world-renowned uh, nephrologist and has published many, many things, including guidelines uh, dealing with serum potassium. So, Dr. Palmer, it's all yours. This is module one, and we've entitled it Scientific Review of Hyper Recurrent Hyperkalemia, Dietary K Intake, Plasma Potassium, and Patient Morbidities. Let me begin by saying that obviously potassium disorders are some of the more common electrolytes that or disturbances that we encounter in clinical practice. And when you think about it, if you have normal kidneys, hyperkalemia is actually not a common occurrence. In fact, the normal kidney has a very large capacity to excrete potassium and maintain normal plasma potassium concentration. Just to illustrate that fact, I share with you here on this slide five separate studies. They're of interest because they took patients who were on a given baseline dietary potassium and they challenged the patients with an increased dietary K intake. And notice that there is virtually no change in the plasma potassium concentration. So again, it's just supportive of the idea that if you have normal kidney function, it's actually difficult to induce hyperkalemia. But in contrast, where we tend to see hyperkalemia in clinical practice are in patients who have kidney disease of one sort or another. And in fact, this slide and its evidence from a retrospective review of uh, a VA database, but what they found was that as you develop progressive stages of chronic kidney disease, the risk for hyperkalemia markedly goes up. And it's really in somewhat of a graded fashion. And this particular analysis found, and as we will talk about here in just a short period of time, once you develop hyperkalemia, there also is a progressive increase in the risk of mortality, again, in a graded way, according to the level of hyperkalemia that uh, the patient has. Now, in addition to reduced kidney function, this European study again, an epidemiologic analysis found that there are other risk factors. And this is what people encounter in clinical practice. Notice that uh, hyperkalemia is more common as people age. Again, as people age, there's other comorbidities that may be playing a role in uh, causing the impaired kidney function. The, the presence of diabetes is a risk factor. Uh, uh, underlying cardiovascular disease, as for example, a myocardial infarction or underlying congestive heart failure or drugs that target the renin-angiotensin system. These are all the typical risk factors that we see when you encounter an individual who has an elevated plasma potassium concentration. Now, interestingly, if you really think about it, the risk factors and the conditions that increase your risk for hyperkalemia are oftentimes linked to disturbances in the renin-angiotensin system. And I just wanted to spend a little bit of time on this slide. First of all, focus on this distal part of the nephron, the collecting duct. This is where potassium is highly regulated. It's where aldosterone mediates potassium secretion. And just to remind you, aldosterone stimulates sodium reabsorption, 
that creates a negative charge in the lumen. And that's really the driving force for potassium secretion. The aldosterone that mediates this process obviously comes from the adrenal gland, where its formation is influenced by angiotensin II, which ultimately comes from the release of renin in the, in the juxtaglomerular cells of the kidney. So anything that disrupts this cascade is gonna increase your risk for elevations in plasma potassium. And if we look here right at the beginning, we can see processes that impair the release of renin. The most common offender are the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, but beta blockers can do that. In the field of transplantation, we use calcineurin inhibitors. They impair the release of renin. The diabetic patient has impaired renin release due to microvascular disease of those juxtaglomerular cells. And interestingly, as we age, there's an age-related decline in the release of renin. There's one drug on the market that targets the system here. It's a drug called aliskarin. It inhibits the enzymatic activity of renin. The ACE inhibitors obviously inhibit the conversion of ANG1 to ANG2. The ARBs, they block the release of aldosterone because they block the AT1 receptor at the adrenal gland and lower aldosterone. And then we have drugs that block uh, the uh, synthesis of aldosterone, things like heparin and the azole antifungals like ketoconazole. And then lastly, we have uh, drugs that block the aldosterone receptor, spiratolactone, aplerinone. The new non-steroidal drug called phenarinone, it causes hyperkalemia less frequently, but nevertheless can cause hyperkalemia. And then the progestational agent, drosperinone, that's caused or found in some birth control pills. And then lastly, epithelial sodium channel blockers, amylaride, triamterine, and the antibiotic trimethoprin, as well as an antibiotic called pentamidine, they complete for sodium reabsorption. And again, if you can't move the sodium into the cell, you don't generate the negative charge, and this is what impairs the K secretion. So the point is, uh, when we think about what causes hyperkalemia, in many instances, it's related to systems or drugs or diseases that target this system. And in many individuals, you can find multiple uh, uh, impairments in this system. Now, when we think about the patients who get hyperkalemia, the other thing to keep in mind is that it's recurrent. And in this particular study, again, a European study, they found that in those patients who had recurrent hyperkalemia, the time to reoccurrence became shorter and shorter over the period of follow-up. So at the, in the initial analysis, about a quarter of the individuals who had chronic kidney disease had a hyperkalemic event. Notice that nearly half of those individuals uh, developed a second hyperkalemic event here at seven or so months. And of those who got that second hyperkalemic, a uh, roughly a half develop a third episode. And uh, the time period, again, between these successive episodes became shorter and shorter. Now, when you think about this, this is not surprising. Once again, the causes of the hyperkalemia are due to disease states and conditions that are not easily reversible. And as these disease states presumably progress, we see that the propensity to develop hyperkalemia reoccurs. And again, the time course uh, become shortened over the period of follow-up as exemplified here. I alluded to this earlier that hyperkalemia is associated with a worse outcome. It's been associated with a higher risk of mortality, major adverse cardiovascular events, and even a higher risk of recurrent hospitalization. 
On the left-hand panel, you see a, uh, an analysis where you look at various levels of plasma potassium. And if we focus on the hyperkalemic arm, notice that as plasma potassium increases, the risk of mortality and major adverse cardiovascular events progressively goes up in a graded way with the degree of the elevation in plasma potassium. Now, it's not to say that the hyperkalemia per se is causing the mortality or the adverse cardiovascular event. It may be the underlying conditions that are causing the hyperkalemia, but nevertheless, you see the relationship here and it's quite strong and it's been shown in really multiple studies now. On the right-hand panel, you see that hyperkalemia is associated with increased risks of hospitalization. Uh, not only was hospitalization increased prior to the event, but once the patient had hyperkalemia, the risk of recurrent hospitalization, again, is still present. Once again, this may be related to the fact that these underlying conditions oftentimes require hospitalizations, but here you could easily envision why hyperkalemia could be associated with hospitalization. Just think about if you're in a clinic all day, the labs come back in the late evening, you find a hyperkalemic lag value. It's not uncommon to refer that patient to the ER where they then get admitted. You know, sometimes we see people who have elevations in the plasma potassium, and let's say it's a value that's between five and five and a half. And the question might come up, well, what about if you just left an individual at that value? Is there any untoward event over time? Well, at least in this analysis of patients with heart failure, the suggestion was that that's not a benign event. Notice that if you looked at the survival of these heart failure patients here on the bottom line where they had persistent hyperkalemia, their survival is much less than if that hyperkalemia had resolved or normalized here on the top line. The same relationship here was shown for disturbances in low plasma potassium as well. But I think the point is, we shouldn't just ignore a mildly elevated potassium and think that it's a benign issue over time, but at least here in this heart failure, hospital, uh, heart failure population, we see that it's not a benign condition. So how do we manage this disorder? We're going to you're going to uh, see a lot more discussion of this in subsequent modules, but I'll just briefly overview some of the management issues. Once again, we want to review the medications that patients may be on. Are we able to discontinue or adjust some of these that could lower the risk? You're going to hear a lot more about dietary K manipulation in the subsequent module, but good diuretic therapy is something we can utilize, correct acidosis if it's present, I'm going to talk a little bit about why one should not necessarily discontinue RAS blockers, the downside of that, and then K binding agents. But let me just say a couple of issues uh, about dietary K intake. And the one issue I wanted to mention is the reflexive response to hyperkalemia is oftentimes to restrict foods that are enriched in dietary potassium. But I do want to highlight that there's a downside to that approach. And that is in this analysis, for example, if you monitored dietary K intake as measured by urinary potassium to creatinine ratios, notice that the individuals who are ingesting the highest amounts of potassium as reflected by high urinary K to creatinine ratios, their progression of chronic kidney disease was slower 
as compared to those individuals who presumably were ingesting less dietary K, their, their CKD progression was faster. So again, uh, uh, foods that are enriched in potassium may have uh, benefits and we don't wanna just discontinue them in a reflexive fashion. Perhaps we need to be a little bit more nuanced. One possibility to explain these findings could be the alkali content in food, fruits and vegetables, which we know have favorable effects on CKD progression. So the point here, and I'm sure you're gonna hear a lot more about this, is that when we think about dietary uh, potassium manipulation, we really are dealing with a catch-22. On the one hand, you might restrict those foods and maybe it might have a favorable effect on potassium, but on the other hand, you're restricting a, a food intake that have definite health benefits. The other comment I wanted to make about hyperkalemic management is, again, a sometimes reflexive response, and that is discontinuing or reducing the dose of renin angiotensin system blockers. Just to illustrate that fact was this study from Europe where they looked at heart failure patients who developed a hyperkalemic event, and they looked at how did the physicians respond. Notice that in about 50% of the subjects, they discontinued mineralocorticoid antagonists. Remember, in heart failure, drugs that block aldosterone have very positive effects on outcomes. Uh, notice that oftentimes they would reduce the dose. You, as you go through here further, they discontinued ACE and ARBs in about a quarter of the time. Uh, and so the, this is oftentimes a response, cutting back or reducing the dose. Now, I'm not here to say that you should never hold the dose with severe hyperkalemia, but I think where the physicians fall short in many instances is that we fail to re-challenge the patient, even at a lower dose, for example. And in this analysis, if you look at what happened over the subsequent one year, in 75% of the cases, the patients were never even re-challenged with a mineralocorticoid antagonist. Again, a drug class that has very marked benefits in heart failure. And again, th this retrospective look at a uh, database showed the downside of using suboptimal doses of renin angiotensin system blockers. So if you look at chronic kidney disease of advanced stages, heart failure, diabetes, or the whole population as a whole, Notice that in those individuals who were receiving maximal doses of renin angiotensin system blockade, they have the lowest mortality as compared to those on a submaximal dose. And those who had the drugs discontinued altogether, they have the worst mortality. So again, in a manner analogous to what I mentioned with dietary potassium manipulation, this is a catch-22. On the one hand, you might be able to reduce the risk of hyperkalemia by using a lower dose, but remember, you're doing so with peril because the data show that this may, you may give up optimal uh, cardiovascular outcome benefits when you do so. So let me just summarize uh, this particular module by saying that the risk of hyperkalemia, it increases in a graded fashion with advancing chronic kidney disease. The risk increases in those with conditions that disrupt the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Hyperkalemia, it predicts a worse outcome regardless of the CKD status, and it should be paid attention to. We don't wanna just ignore chronic hyperkalemia, as I mentioned to you. And the consequences of hyperkalemia, they have negative impact 
on some of our cl clinical decision-making. The, the idea that we reflexively withhold fruits and vegetables, or the idea that we discontinue renin angiotensin system blockade, we need to think twice about doing so uh, because of the potential benefits that we're giving up. Biff, you made a couple of very, very key points that I really want the audience to understand and I want to emphasize. One is do not uh, resort to what I call affectionately homeopathic doses of RAS blockade because they've not been shown to be of any benefit to the patient and you're really not uh, altering hyperkalemia risk that much. The, the data beyond what you've shown, um, there's at least four other papers um, in very large studies that show that maintaining a blocker of the renin angiotensin system at good doses in people with GFRs below 30, so stage four CKD, in that setting, guess what? The people that were on the maximal dose of an ACE or an ARB had less likelihood to die from all-cause mortality and also less likelihood to go to dialysis. So it's very, and that's in a database of 4,000 people. So I think it's important to keep in mind that half doses or low doses of ACEs and ARBs, at least in the studies that have looked at them, offer little benefit over not giving, giving the drug at all. So don't fool yourself with the homeopathic doses of five of lisinopril or anything else. They don't work. You need to give appropriate doses. So that's one big point. Now, Biff, you said early in your talk, and I want to talk about this a little bit, when we measure potassium or when the patient goes to measure potassium, they get a serum potassium. Now, a lot of countries outside the U.S. measure a plasma potassium. So what are the differences between serum and plasma potassium and which one is better? Yeah, uh, that's a great point. <clears throat> so the serum potassium is generally going to be slightly higher than the plasma potassium. And I'll be honest with you, I, I've actually encountered several people over the years who I've been referred to for management of hyperkalemia. And the hyperkalemia was in the context of no readily identifiable cause. And uh, you know, in those settings where it really doesn't make sense, I, I have taken the patient down to the lab and asked them, first of all, to measure it in a green top tube uh, and also without the tourniquet and the fist clenching. And it's surprising how many of those individuals will actually have a normal value. And uh, I think there may be some individuals out there who, for lack of a better term, have fragile red blood cells, for example. And again, whenever I would just point out to our, our colleagues listening that when you do see hyperkalemia, that's just, uh, it doesn't make sense. There's no, ready, no, no risk factor. You really need to consider doing that to exclude the so-called pseudo hyperkalemia. But to, to answer your uh, question specifically, the serum potassium does run a little bit higher than the plasma potassium because it allows for red blood cells in the tube to uh, coagulate. I thank you for that explanation. I just wanted to make sure that the audience knew they had alternatives. Yeah. Now, we have a question from the audience, and here's the question. What is the serum potassium level at which you would not start any RAS blocker before reducing the potassium? 
Yeah, you know, I'll be honest with you, over the years, my threshold uh, for worrying about potassium has become a little bit lower. For example, I used to always say at 5.5, you know, I, I never got too excited. But, you know, I, I would like you to at least consider this, this, this possibility. And this is what I think may be happening. When we deal with people who may have even mild potassiums, five to five and a half, uh, remember that's their starting point. And imagine what happens after a meal. I would argue to you that their excursions might be into very high levels that we don't really you know, measure. We typically get a potassium once a day or you know, once a week, uh, but what's really happening in these postprandial periods? And so when we look at some of the data like I showed where a persistent hyperkalemia that's even mild, defined as greater than five is not a benign event. Uh, I, I have become a little bit more aggressive in trying to normalize the potassium or get it close to five before I start these drugs. But I, we, we now have options, you know, uh, that are, that are very effective. For example, after maximizing diuretics, if we need better blood pressure control, we also have these potassium binding agents that we can utilize. And, uh, I think there's very little, there's very few people nowadays that we can't control the plasma potassium and yet still be able to utilize the renin angiotensin system blockers. But again, I just wanted to emphasize, I think we need to start thinking about what are these excursions that we don't typically measure? Excursions that could be into levels that we would be much more uncomfortable with. So Biff, you, you use the very good term here and I just wanna capitalize on it a little bit, excursions. <clears throat> You know, the, it's, very, it's very important for the audience to understand that what kills you is not the level of potassium. I've seen patients come in with Ks of 7.5. They walked in. They don't feel good, but they walked in. They're not dead. However, the speed with which it gets there is what kills you. So if you got there very quickly, I'm not optimistic about your outcome. If you got there very slowly, you got a better shot. And so I agree with you. I think you want to make the baseline lower if you can. And I'm a big fan of the potassium binders because then you don't have to worry. It gives you a buffer. They're well tolerated. We've done studies. You've been part of these where we've gone out a year with these things and, and they're, they do quite well. And they enable, they're enablers of therapies that are life-saving. And I think that's what the audience needs to appreciate. So now I do want to ask another question because the audience, I don't think, thinks about this. You know, there are situations where, you know, the, the potassium levels, in fact, let me ask you the question. I know we're talking about hyperkalemia, but I, I have a question. We've established now if the speed with which you get an elevation of potassium as fast, you're going to die. But if you had a choice between hypo and hyperkalemia with a risk of death, which one would you pick? Uh, <laughs> boy, I don't know. I mean, when you looked at that epidemiologic data, again, hypokalemia is not a benign entity either. 
And right. so uh, we have to pay attention to both. I would point this out, and I think this is less well appreciated. You know, you talked about using binders even out to a year. You obviously did that with the Petiramir uh, binding agent. Uh, one of the things that's been striking is that these drugs, even though that they you're using them chronically, the incidence of getting hypokalemia is quite unusual. I mean, it can occur occasionally, but I've uh, physicians have asked me, asked me before, do I have to worry about you know my patient getting hypokalemic? I mean, the pay, the plasma potassium seems to get into the normal range and it stays there, and uh, that's been a distinctly unusual phenomenon. Yeah, that that's that's important. Where I was going with this is actually if you look at outcome data, hypokalemia because of the risk of arrhythmias is actually a more ominous prognostic sign than hyperkalemia. So that was one point uh, that I wanted to make. And I think the the issue is because, uh, you know, we we did this stuff as well with, with SCC. It wasn't just pterimer, which is better tolerated in many cases. And those have gone out a year too. So the, the long-term outcome and tolerability of these things is well-established, FDA approved. And they, they really have gotten a lot of patients that I've had out of jams where they clearly have needed life-saving therapy and they couldn't because their potassiums were really very high. So I, I'm a big fan. And um, the fact that we have two is a good thing. There's no need to go back to kx um, and, and so we've moved ahead. Um, so I, I think that's that's a an important point. Now I'm gonna finish up and, and ask you, is there any kind of enduring thought that you want the audience to be left with? Yeah, and, and before I give you that enduring thought, if I could, one of the one of the things too that may explain that higher risk for hypokalemia is when you and we were talking about this before our module started so a lot of uh, there are some individuals in which the hypokalemia is actually caused because they have mag deficiency and mag deficiency is proarrhythmogenic in and of itself think about chronic diuretic therapy causing mag wasting and i think there could be kind of the additivity of the two you know when you think about that with regards to an enduring therapy, let's face it, uh, you know, we have such good data with uh, renin angiotensin system blockers, uh, ACE, ARBs, aldosterone antagonists, uh, and how these drugs not only provide uh, kidney protection, but cardiovascular protection. And to be able to use those drugs without developing a limiting side effect, that being the hyperkalemia is of uh, a critical is a critical issue. And as you correctly point out, I mean, the, with the use of the zirconium, the pteromia, these new K-binding drugs, uh, these are well-tolerated drugs that enable us to use these drugs, the, the RAS inhibitors. And so I guess that would be my, the, really the enduring and the take-home message here uh, that, that I'd like to convey to our colleagues. Well, Biff, thank you very much. We're definitely on the same page.